0: The
1: following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Today we're going to be reading from John five sixteen through 30. That's on the back of your bulletins if you want to follow along. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has, who has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You may be seated.
0: Good morning. morning. My name is Jared Huffman. I'm the pastor here at Restoration Southside. I'm so delighted that you're here with us this morning. If you're brand new, this room is brand new to us. We've not been in here yet before this very morning, so we're glad that you're here. Uh, We've been in the Peyton, which is right next door, and the Lord's been kind to us and grown us in number, and we're excited about that, and we want to make sure that there's plenty of room for those to come and to wrestle. Something I want to tell you about preaching and me, just as I'm going to be preaching at you a lot of the time, you don't have to agree with what I say. There is a sense in which churchy people feel like what makes it significant that you're in a room is that everything that comes out of the man's mouth, you fully agree with. I hate that. I hate that. You can come in here wherever you're at, whether you believe all of what I say or a Of what I say, or you don't agree with anything that I say, I want you in this room because we want to do good by you. Even if you don't agree with me, we want to do good by you, and so we want to get to know you. So even if I say something that's difficult for you in particular, I encourage you to keep coming back. Let Ben or me know if you want to get coffee or a beer and to talk through some of these things, but we're here for you, and don't feel like you have to agree with everything I say for you to feel welcome in this room. I hope there are many of you in this room who don't agree with me at all. If you have a Bible, or if you want to turn your order of worship over, the verses that we're going to be looking at are right there for you. This sort of seems like a long text where you're not exactly sure what is going on, and so let me give you a little backdrop before we... Dive in. What has happened just before this text is that Jesus is sort of coming into his ministry fully. He's begun healing people. He's begun preaching the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes upon this one particular guy who hasn't gotten up off his mat for 38 years. Now, if you've been down for 38 years... And Jesus is going to heal you. Jesus could have done it the day before or the day after. There is no rush when you've been down for 38 years. Jesus particularly chooses to heal this man on the Sabbath because Jesus wants to explode the so-called righteous people's view of what is godliness, of what is holiness. And so all of these legalists, these Pharisees, these ones who've made religion more important than faith. And Jesus wants to detonate what it is they do and explain to them who it is that He is. He's basically saying to them, I'm the one that you've been waiting for even though you don't know it. Jesus steps on their self-important legalism and their self-righteousness and He challenges their legalism. Friends, if you've ever been wounded by legalistic people, take courage and comfort that Jesus steps on self-righteous legalistic people. And He does so on purpose. But if you're like me and you've also at times looked down on others as if they're worse than you, be careful. Because Jesus will step on our self-righteousness too. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? We thank you and you... We praise You for providing us this gorgeous place to come and worship. But each one of us come in here not finished. Not finished in fully understanding who we are. Not fully finished in understanding who You are. We come in with lots of different sins and struggles and doubts. Some of us just can't get around the idea that there's only one God who loves us. Only one way to heaven. Believe that, but find a hard time even caring. Would you challenge us by Jesus' claim this morning? Would you wake us up? Would you comfort us? Would you help us to see Jesus differently than we have thought Him to be? It's in His name that we pray. Amen. For those of you keeping score at home, we're going to talk about three things this morning. We're going to talk about the claim that Jesus makes, the claim that Jesus makes, the confirmation that He uses for His claim, and the complications that come from whether or not we listen to Jesus. The claim that Jesus makes, the confirmation that He uses to prove His claim, and the complications that arise for those of us who deal with Jesus. As you get used to my preaching, you'll find out that I love movies, One of my favorite movies from childhood, I don't know if I'd put it in that same category for now, but my favorite movies from childhood is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This is the one where Kevin Costner audaciously did not use a British accent to be Robin Hood, but everyone else in the movie did, and we were supposed to not notice it. But other than that, the movie's awesome. And there's this one scene, Robin of Loxley has come home finally from the Crusades. He's been saved. He's been rescued. He's been brought back by a boat on a boat. He's with his new friend Azim. And they're walking through Loxley property, kind of winding their way through the miles of Loxley property. But what he doesn't know yet is while he's been gone, forcing his religion on other people, while he's been gone doing that, the Sheriff of Nottingham have captured all of the Loxley lands. They've, they've slain his dad. And they've declared. That the Loxleys own property of Sherwood, property of the, excuse me, the sheriff of Nottingham. And so here he comes, walking through his own land, excited to finally be home, and he sees this little boy named Wolf who's running for his life. They have dogs chasing him and men on horses with swords, and they're coming after this little boy, and they finally, the dogs chase this little boy up on the tree, and Guy of Gisborne is there. Do you remember him? He sort of got this and he's pompous and he's making fun of the boy as he's doing it and he says, cut it down. And just before they cut it down, Robin Hood says, hold. Hold. What manner of creature is it so fearsome that it'd take off all of, take all of these men? Is it the devil himself? And he looks up there and he sees a boy and he says, oh, except it's a little boy. And Guy of Gisborne looks at him and says to him, Stranger, I invite you to move on, for these is the sheriff of Nottingham's lands. And he says back to them right in his face, Wrong. These are my lands and my tree. And therefore, whatever is in it also belongs to me. In other words, Jesus is comfortable using fighting words. He looks at what is supposed to be the authority of the time and says, It's not yours. It's not your religion. It's my religion. You're not the leaders of it. I'm the leader of it. You're not important. I'm actually God. And Jesus is comfortable using these fighting words because these Pharisees were bent on making people who struggled and doubt and couldn't be quite holy enough, feel on the fringe. They were making religion for good people. And Jesus steps all over it. Just like Robin of Loxley says, look, this is my land, and I'm the boss of it. Jesus comes into the temple with the Pharisees and says, this is my world. This is my people. We're not used to Jesus talking like this. We're used to Jesus having this kind complexion and holding sheep and walking around and petting kids on the head. And Jesus is fierce and He's looking at them and saying, you have taken what was meant to lead people to Me in their brokenness and you've put it only for the self-righteous. So Jesus challenges them in their self-important legalism and their self-righteousness. The first thing He's saying is, That He is equal with the Father. The claim that Jesus makes is that He is equal with the Father. Look on your order of worship with me in verses 19-23. through Truly, truly, I say to you, so the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What he's saying in these words is that he is equal with the Father. That the God that these Pharisees are referencing, that He is the executor of that Father's will. That they who have made themselves so important, so holy in their own eyes, He's saying, I'm actually connected to the Father. In fact, I'm equal with the Father. You see, what He's saying is that He's actually God. And we can look at that and say, ah, we don't want to be God We're not that bad, but we really want to be king. We really want to be king of our own lives. We really want to demonstrate authority over others. My son Knox, he's my 10-year-old, he's a redhead. He, this morning, was walking around as we were helping set things up, and he saw Will Crumley, who's one of our tall basketball players, and he saw Will drop something, and Knox walked up to him and said, I am the pastor's son, and you are fired. I think he was kidding well you're not fired but what he is wrongly assuming is that because of some position he thinks he has he has authority and that's what the Pharisees were doing and if we're not careful that's what we'll do too we will assert some position in our lives and we will act as if we have authority that we don't do you remember back in Adam and Eve in the garden do you remember way back do you remember why they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat Because they want to be like God. You remember when Moses is coming down with the Ten Commandments, God has rescued them from Egypt, and finally God is going to show the people how they should live. And while God who has rescued them from 430 years of slavery is gone, Moses comes back down and they have built a God with their own hands and they are worshiping. Or how about when Moses is told To speak to the rock in front of all of Israel so that God's people who are thirsty can be filled with water that their livestock and their children can drink. God says, speak to the rock. And Moses strikes the rock because he's so frustrated and he wants the people to believe it's him that brings the water forth because he wants to be like God. Or how about with David, King David? Remember, his predecessor was Saul, and the only reason that Saul became king is because the people said, we want someone to be our king other than God. Everyone else gets to have a king, and we just have God. We want a king for ourselves. And so they ask for a king, and God grants it to them. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there's this sense that we either want to be the king, or we want God to not be the king. We want to be the king or we want God to not be the king. And I know you've experienced that in your own life. Our problem with Jesus isn't that He's a king. Our problem is that we don't want a king. We want to have authority. What are the things in your life that bother you about Jesus being king? Maybe it's some of the things that He says and has firm opinions on it and you Dismiss His kingship because you say, I'm not sure that's what He really meant, and I'm sure that was a long time ago, and I'm not sure that really matters. You're saying, I don't want a king. What are the things in your life that bother you about Jesus being the king? It's because when He's the king, He has the authority to talk about your sex life. He has the authority to talk about what you do with your money, how you spend your days, how you spend your evenings, what you put into your body. He has authority over your life and we sort of dismiss Him because we don't want a king. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They don't want Him to be the king of the religion. They're happy operating as the kings themselves. Ultimately, they have come to idolize their religion so much that they miss the object of their religion. And really religious people need to be careful with that. You love your Bible so much, and the way you serve so much, and the devos so much, and Christian music. Actually, nobody loves Christian music that much. But love these things so much that you miss what they're pointing you to. But ultimately, it's not a set of rules or principles. Ultimately, it's bringing you before the king and saying, am I yours or not? And these Pharisees would not submit and would not surrender. Will you? Even those of you who are already trusting in Jesus, most of us like the fact that He's our Savior, but do not like the fact that He's our King. Are we are more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. So His claim is that He is equal with God, that He's ultimately the King of all the universe, and His claim is also that He has the power to give life. He has the power to give life. But the thing is, we want to decide what gives us life. The Pharisees wanted to decide what gave them life. For them, it was reputation and honor. For us, it might be beauty or wealth or numbness. That we want to decide, if I can just make it to this point in my day so I can experience this, this is what gives me life. And don't you dare touch it, Jesus. This is what gives me life. I like when people look at me across the room and think I'm beautiful. Not me personally, but that might be for you. I like when people talk about me positively, and that's what gives me life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who gives you life. I'm the one who's the authority over who gets given life and who doesn't. We go looking for life in other places. Whether it's late on the internet, or at the bottom of a bottle, or staring into a mirror, or love hearing your name come out of other people's lips and praise, we like to decide what gives us life. But he's saying, only I can bring you life. In the last week or so, we went away down to Gulfport Mississippi and we actually mar- married off Skylar and Joe who are here this morning and they were gracious enough to host us for the following week and so we stayed down there even after they were left and gone on their honeymoon and we had a great time we were playing in the pool and we were watching TV and we went to a water park but one of the afternoons that we were driving around my son Connor who's just 21 months old he's one of the baby twins All of a sudden he's sitting in his car seat and Aaron kind of just casually looks back to check on him, to see how the kiddos are doing, to make sure no one's killing each other back there. And as she looks at Connor, his eyes roll back into his head, his face turns blue, and he starts breathing really shallowly. And of course, as every mother would, she starts to get very concerned and climbs out of her seat and goes back to get him and is trying to wake him up. Connor, and then she's calling me for help and so i just pull over and put the hazards on and i get back there and i pull him into my arms and i'm looking at him and his eyes are fluttering and his lips are blue and i think i'm losing him and there's this terrible thing that goes through your mind in a moment like that i can't stop this from happening i can't bring life out of death i can't do it there's there's not a button to push i'm even tickling him just so that he'll keep his eyes open there's nothing i can do and i'm terrified can't bring life out of death. You can't bring life out of death either. You might have it in your mind that yes, you're struggling now, but someday you will get past all of your inner demons and you will have a great career and you will have a great family and you will have a great life, and you still won't be able to bring life out of death. Everything you will have had will still feel somewhat empty. Somewhat, this wasn't enough. I can't quite bring life out of death. And thankfully, Connor is fine and he was dehydrated and had a spiked fever. But it made me remember that I can't bring life out of death. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who can bring life out of death. Actually, I'm the one who can take you from death and cross over into life. But we want to decide what gives us life. If you're in this room and you haven't been moved from death into life, I'm so glad that you're here. This is exactly where we want you to be, and I want to get to know you personally. But if you haven't been moved from death into life, or you don't even, not quite sure you know what that means, this is the room to be in. Look at verse 28 and 29 with me. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What He's ultimately saying is here, those that have done good will experience resurrection, and those who have done poorly will experience the resurrection of death. And it's almost as right there for one second He sounds exactly like the Pharisees. Do good and experience life, and do bad experience death. But that's not what he's saying. We know that. And John, on the very next page, John 29 says, 28 and 29 says this. Excuse me. Then they said to him, 'What what must we do to be doing the works of God? That question stuck with him. What must we do? We don't want to be those that experience resurrection unto death. What is doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you may believe in Him who He has sent. The job that we're all called to do, and it might take you 80 years, and it might take you 2 years, the job that you are called to do, the work of salvation, is for you to believe that there's no other place to find life, even though we look for it in other places all the time, there's no other place to find life than in Jesus. whatever it is that you're trying to find life out of, my friends, He can give you what you're looking for. You may not experience it one time and never again. You may have to keep coming back to it, but it will give you life in a way that other things will only bring you death. So Jesus claims to be able to be equal with God. He claims that He's the one who's able to give life. And He claims that He's the authority to judge. Glance with me back in your order of worship in verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will ri- rise to life, to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But I can myself can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. And then in verse 27, it says this, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Picture this, a bunch of legalistic, religious people who have spent their careers knowing more and doing more and believing more than everyone else. And so it has sat them up on this throne of judgment where they look down on everybody else. And Jesus, with fighting words, says, you're not on that judgment throne, you're one who gets to make those decisions about good and bad and right and wrong and weak and strong. You're not the ones who get to make that decision. Why? Because ultimately, not only am I equal with the Father in power and in glory and not only am I the only one who can give life, I am the only one who can judge. I am the only one who can judge. But again, problem with us is that we don't want a king. We don't want to judge. We say it to each other all the time, don't judge me. We don't want to judge. C.S. Lewis once said this: the ancient man approached God or even the gods as, excuse me, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, and God is on the dock. God is the one who's being judged. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. What Jesus is saying, ultimately, what Lewis is saying, is that we look at it as if if God comes up with enough evidence, if God comes up with enough proof, if God does enough good, at some point, perhaps, we will and we will acquit Him of the crimes that everyone has accused Him of. And Jesus is saying, friends, I hate to bring disappointment, but you're the one who will be judged. Ultimately, despite what our modern ears love is that no one can judge Me, is that Jesus says, oh, they can and I will. Now, if you're like me, it's a terrifying thought to experience the judgment of God. There's this song that we'd sing in church. We'll sing it sometimes here called Rock of Ages. And the last verse used to freak me out. It used to freak me out as a little kid doing the things that I knew I shouldn't be doing. And you'd sing, while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar to realms unknown and see you on your judgment throne, And instead of worship, I would feel terror that ultimately I am going to die. My my eyes are going to close and I am going to soar to worlds unknown. And the one person that I'm going to find there is a judge sitting on a throne. And it used to terrify me that that's when we're going to encounter Him sitting on a judgment throne. It wasn't until older that I began to love that verse. I began to actually sing it as loud as any of the other verses. Because Jesus has to equip me. Because He already paid the price. Jesus has to judge me clean because He judged Himself dirty. Jesus has to set me free because He already was condemned and punished. And now I sing that, see thee on my judgment throne, that's ultimately the time where I experience His goodness the most is because He said, I will pay the price so that you never will. Ultimately, Jesus receives the judgment, the condemnation. It says in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. He's saying, don't worry about the people that charge you. Don't worry about the mistakes that you've made. Don't worry about the sin that you haven't come fully to grips with. No one's going to bring charges against you. I'm the judge. And he says this, Who then is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died. What he's saying is the only one who could condemn you is instead condemned on your behalf. And so when you continue to carry around your guilt and your shame as if you're still culpable, as if you're still guilty, it's as if you're looking at Jesus himself and saying your sacrifice is not enough. That's why as Christians we're not supposed to walk around with our heads held low because the reason that you are safe is because He was condemned. And because He was condemned, no one can take away your acquittal. Not even sin five years from now, this afternoon, 70 years from now, no one can take away your acquittal because He's already died and been condemned in your place. When Jesus says you are forgiven, believe it. Don't believe it in a temporary sense. Yeah, I'm forgiven for what I did last night. Believe it in your identity you are forgiven. From your very first sin to your last dying breath sin, you are forgiven because Jesus has made it so. When Jesus says you are forgiven, friends, believe it. He confirms these claims... In a very obvious way. In 23 through 29, he talks about the fact that if you don't believe what I have to say, at least believe John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived. In verse 32 through 34, he says, John says I did it the right way. He says in 36, if you don't believe me, the works that I'm doing that no one else can do, I can do it. Believe in John the Baptist, believe in my works. Even the Father. Sends the dove and says, This is My Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father it testifies to Me. So Jesus is using witnesses. You don't think I'm God? Check with John the Baptist. Check with the works that I'm doing. Check with the Father. He says, check the Bible. This is fighting words. Talking to a group of people who could reproduce the Old Testament verbatim from memory. And he's saying, you don't know how to read the Bible. You may think you know, but you don't. If you've missed me. And then ultimately, it's the biggest insult Jesus gives them. He says, I don't have to judge you. You know who judges you? Moses. That's what he'll say later in verse 45. He'll say, not only does John the Baptist and my father... And my works and the Bible testify to the fact that I'm the real deal. Your hero Moses is pointing to me. It's like stealing their huge hero and saying that he's been on his side all along. What Jesus is saying to this group of people is that the confirmation you need isn't a head problem. You have all the head knowledge you need. It's a heart problem. You don't want to surrender. You don't want to bow. And I encourage you, if you're still wrestling with wherever you're at, in Jesus, and these long-thought-of, um, you know, apologetic you have for not believing, for not surrendering, for not being sure, I ask you to just seriously consider how much of it is about a head problem, a principle problem, and how much is it that you just don't want a king? You just don't want a judge. Because ultimately, Jesus says, I have all the information I need, and they still don't believe because they have a heart problem. And so the challenge is for us, and we'll close here. You see that He has claimed to be God, to give life, to be the only judge, and He has all this confirmation in those five witnesses. But they don't disbelieve because they don't know. They disbelieve because they don't want to bow a knee. So ultimately, they're reading the Bible wrongly. They looked at the book and came to all the wrong conclusions. And we do that too. We read the Bible, honestly, it's described like this by Brian Chappell. We read the Bible because he's a sugar daddy or because he's an ogre in the sky. Or we come to church because he's a sugar daddy or he's an ogre in the sky. If I'm good to God, God will be good to me. Or we do it like, if I keep God at bay, He won't mess with me in my life that I quite enjoy. But ultimately, we're not reading and learning and loving about God. It's to get stuff. And Keller says, ultimately, you have to go for God to get God. It's not about embracing a certain number of rules. It's not about agreeing with a certain amount of principles. It's not about seeing enough evidence. Ultimately, it's about bowing on your knees and laying down your sword and say, I don't know if I agree with all of it. I don't even know if I like all of it. But I'd rather you be my king and my judge than me be my king and my judge. You see, they were accepting glory from each other and not interested in experiencing the glory of God. And we do that too, friends. Religious people do that so much. We live a certain way so that we can experience glory And we don't really care if it brings glory to God. These guys were following God as something to do and not something to believe. Some of you love Lord of the Rings. I know Ginny Mackey does. Lord of the Rings is a phenomenal series written by Tolkien and remade by Peter Jackson over the last 15 or 20 years. I'm excited when I get to re-watch it back through them with my sons. And daughter eventually. The last, one of the last scenes of the movie, and it's hard to know because the Lord of the Rings, the last one, ends like four times. You can't, you have to keep watching. It's not quite over yet. But one of the last scenes is Aragorn, the king, is finally being coronated. He's, he's finally becoming king before everyone. And there's this powerful scene where everyone has come to gather and see the king. he finally makes his way through the crowd and there's these four tiny, seemingly valueless hobbits who are not important compared to this king that we've been waiting for. And finally, as he makes his way to them, all of the hobbits, they're tiny and they start to bow down towards him. Do you remember what he says? Aragorn says, friends, my friends, you bow to no one. And he lifts them up. And ultimately, that's what it's like following God. Yes, you have to take on a Savior. Yes, you have to take on a King. Yes, you have to take on a Judge. But as you bow down and surrender and submission, it's as if the second you bow down, he says, my friends, you bow now to no one. James says this, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying you want to find real life then stop trying to find it in other places. Find it in Jesus. Don't refuse to bow down. Don't refuse to surrender. Because then you might miss out on being exalted with Him. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we're more like the Pharisees than we'd like to believe. We want to be our own king. We want to be our own judge. We want to find life wherever we'd like to. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would make it real to us that the only place to find judgment is being safe in Christ. The only place to find life is being safe in Christ. That ultimately, as we humble ourselves, You will exalt us as You've exalted Your Son. Help us to look for life in Jesus and Jesus alone. And rather than challenge Him with our arguments, help us to bow our knees so that we might be lifted up. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.